Kia ora katoa, ko Gwen Compton toko ingoa, and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in the world of local government and local democracy in New Zealand. Well, we're back at it after school holidays, which sort of got extended out slightly uh, for the Compton whānau because our youngest boys' daycare centre actually got closed down the week after school holidays due to staff shortages thanks to COVID. Um, so that was a bit of an experience for us have, uh, and sort of limited what I was able to do. And obviously you can't really record a podcast when you've got a five-year-old and then a three-year-old running about the house. It's not really conducive to a quiet space. Um but thankfully, sort of not unlike Parliament, uh, the local government sector does try and, I guess, lessen the load slightly during school holidays. So that makes those sorts of things a bit more manageable, though you've obviously still got all the other sort of bits and bobs that come with being a councillor as well that tick on regardless. Now, if you've been uh, following the local government sector in news in that space over the past few weeks, you'll have noticed that there have been plenty of stories about what's going on. Now, as a first one, um, I think we'll have a little bit of a talk about representation reviews and actually local government representation, uh, because that's been a very topical issue over the past few weeks. Now, as I mentioned back in episode three, local government has a regular cycle of reviewing how our communities are represented on their local authority, be that a district, a city, a regional council, or a unitary authority. Now, there's a few key decisions in that process, Um, and this is what's called a representation review, but there's other bits and bobs that actually sit along with it as well. And there are decisions about whether or not you're going to have Māori wards, uh, and Parliament last term passed legislation, which uh, removed some of the uh, restrictions that made that a more difficult decision for councils to take, Uh, and one of them was around basically there being a trigger for a referendum on Māori wards if a council did propose on having them. Um, So lots of councils went back and revisited their decisions around that uh, because they were able to do that thanks to the law change. Now whatever decision a council makes on Māori wards, or made on Māori wards I should say, given that we're sort of out of that cycle just right now, or kick up again in the the next council trienniums, that decision has a flow-on effect to the next step of this process, and this is where we get into the formal representation review. Uh, And you can end up in a situation, so as a council, you have to carry out a representation review every six years. But let's say three years into that six-year period, you decide that you want to have Māori wards that in turn triggers the need for a representation review because you're changing the, uh, the, the overall balance of your representation arrangements by including those wards. So a few councils had that situation happen as well, from what I understand. Now, I won't go over the details of that process. Well, I will sort of actually, because I want to illustrate this to some extent. Um, but you can go back and listen in episode three and get a, a, a rehash of what's behind that. Um, but what's interesting at the moment is that the Local Government Commission is actually currently releasing their determinations on the representation proposals that were submitted to them by councils. And you can check them out on the Local Government Commission's website, uh, lgc.govt.nz. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast from the Local Government Commission, for the love of God, please put the exact date of 
the a determination was made on the web page holding them all it just makes life so much easier than what you've got there at the moment some some of the basic metadata would be helpful now what i want to do in terms of these determinations is i want to use uh, the council that i'm on carpety coast district council the experience that we've had as an illustration of what can happen as i think what we've gone through is quite interesting and that's not least because it does give me a smug sense of satisfaction that the local government commission basically chucked out the ward structure that was proposed to them and went with one that was pretty close to what my actual preferred option was from earlier in our representation review process so that was quite a, a happy moment for me to see that happen but i think that just shows um it's useful because it shows what can happen in this process it's not just a rubber stamping exercise that the local government commission undertakes so as some background uh, to this, the draft representation proposal that was consulted on by Carpety Coast District Council was a very heated affair. Um, and I'm on record as having not agreed with that draft proposal that we went out and consulted with our community on. Now if you look back at Carpety's previous representation reviews in 2015 and 2009, one of the big issues that's hung over our representation arrangements has been what's called the what's called underrepresentation, and that uh, primarily took place for our Waikanae ward. Now, what that means is that Waikanae had more people for its one councillor than any other ward had in its in the district relative to their councillors. So, at the two thousand and seven election. Uh, Waikanae was underrepresented by 9.24%, which isn't that big of a margin in the scheme of things, and it's well within the tolerances that the Local Government Commission um, would be happy to accept in a normal situation. The problem is, uh, so obviously there's a representation review that I think happened in 2009, uh, then there was a follow-up review in 2015, six years after that, and what that review found is that underrepresentation had in Waikanae had blown up to 20%. But still, the Carpety Coast District Council persisted with the status quo structure of a mixture of having five ward councillors, um, and that is uh, one councillor in Ōtaki, which coincidentally was overrepresented, one in Waikanae, two in Paraparaumu, which was also slightly underrepresented, and um, one in Paikakariki Raumati. And then alongside that, they, well, we have five district-wide councillors. And so they are elected at large across the whole of the Kapiti district. And obviously the mayor is elected in the same way across the district as a whole. Now, in their determination on the 2015 representation review, the Local Government Commission took a view that essentially boiled down to, look, Waikanae's situation isn't great, and you should really look at how you remedy that the next time around. So along came 2021's representation review, and oh my god, it was a goodie. As councillors, we had a number of briefings that frankly should have been public workshops, and it was only after I raised the fact that other councils were holding the equivalent uh, workshop, the, the equivalent meetings as public workshops or in council or subcommittee meetings, um, that I managed to actually get our, our representation review uh, briefings turned into public workshops um, because that's where we worked through a lot of the various issues and solutions to the questions that were raised by Carpety's changing demography and uh, responding to the local government commission's previous determination and the issues that they raised. 
Now, on that topic of briefings, it's worth covering this, because if you followed me on Twitter, I've, and so if you followed some of the local democracy reporting as well on the issue of council secret briefings, you've seen I've been very critical about how councils use those briefings, and this will come up again in this podcast, actually, um, because I find that it's hugely inconsistent across the sector how councils apply the Local Government Official Information and Meetings Act. Um, and this is one of these cases where Carpety was doing one thing with how we were holding these as initially as closed-door briefings. Other councils were going through their options and having the debate in public workshops or in formal council meetings. Um, so that was, you know, it's a real bugbear because it, if you're doing it in closed briefings, you end up with a situation which is almost what Carpety had, where we landed this draft proposal on people with them having not been able to see how the sausage was made, if you'll pardon the uh, expression. But anyway, back to the story. So during those briefings, which should have been workshops, we worked our way through four options in terms of representation in Carpety. Option A included three large wards, which was really just an amalgamation of the two central wards in the district, which was Waikanae and Paraparaumu, which would have become a single uh, single large ward served by three councillors. Now that, in theory, largely would have solved Waikanae's underrepresentation issue, but it did it by basically eliminating Waikanae as a standalone ward. Uh, and that option would have also had five district-wide councillors. Option B was an all-ward model with three large wards. <coughs> now these were arranged a little bit differently to the current wards, uh, but essentially you had an Ōtaki ward in the north of our district, then you had a coastal ward and an inland ward, which would have cut across the boundaries of the uh, other three existing wards. Now this model would have seen 12 ward councillors and no district-wide councillors at all. Uh, and that would have all uh, hit within the Local Government Commission's preferred uh, plus 10, minus 10, under, over-represented range. Though where it could have fallen foul was in terms of, uh, I guess, identifying the communities of interest, and that's how people interact and move about their district and those sorts of things. So where do you actually have a sense of belonging? Now, option C was all small wards with no district-wide councillors. And that was essentially cutting up our, um, our existing wards into smaller ones. Now, as a result of that, we would have had seven councillors, and they would have been all ward councillors. Um, and again, these all would have been within that plus or minus 10% rule from the commission, uh, though it only just would have been the case for Ōtaki. Now, this was actually my preferred option, because you could actually either keep it as it is and just have all ward councillors and only have seven, and in theory, you because the workload essentially arguably stays the same in terms of council stuff but you have fewer councillors in theory would remunerate them better to in order to the uh, the extra workload that they have to pick up by not having the, the district-wide councillors there um, or you could add district-wide councillors back in and I sort of weighed up the idea I remember talking about saying we could have three or four district-wide councillors to try and get a bit of balance and recognising that we want to keep the ratio of people to councillors somewhat similar as the district grows. Um, that was a bit of, to be honest, I was a bit ambivalent about that. I wasn't wedded to the idea of either having only ward or having a mixture, a mixed model. Now, option D was at the other extreme end of it. That was to do away with wards altogether and have ten councillors elected at large across the district. And as you can imagine, that didn't fly in part because Carpety, if you've been here, 
there is a uh, prevailing view that we are essentially four slash five towns uh, dotted along the coast. And if you come from south to north, you've got Paikakariki, um, then you've got Raumati and Paraparaumu. Sometimes they're kept together, sometimes they're separated out. Uh, you've got Waikanae, and then you've got Ōtaki. Now, despite my and a few other councillors' efforts, uh, who we were pushing for that small ward model, um, option A was sent, the draft that was sent out for consultation with our community. Now, the other thing you need to know about this story is that here in Kapiti, we have a strong tradition of community boards, um, which sit as a layer underneath of council. The community boards we have at the moment are Ōtaki, Waikanae, Paraparaumu Raumati, and Paikakariki. Now these four, as I just mentioned in terms of the towns going, the towns that make up the district, those four boards essentially line up with the four main areas of urban settlement. Um, now, what happened is that in this proposal, this, uh, this option to, option A proposal, it actually proposed to eliminate the community boards entirely. Now, when that idea was first floated, I was keen to understand how, in a scenario without community boards, um, councillors would be supported to pick up a lot of that gr grassroots level engagement and advocacy that our community boards currently do. Uh, now, ultimately, I, because I wasn't happy with the large ward proposal, and then hearing from our community themselves around what they thought about the value of community boards, which was overwhelmingly in support of community boards, that was why I ultimately didn't support that draft proposal that was put put out for consultation because we got feedback from our community boards before we we did that, and the community actually joined in some of that beforehand. Now, as you might imagine, and as I've sort of alluded to there, our draft proposal was really poorly received by the community. Uh, following the submissions process and some really fiery hearings, council got down to the business of trying to figure out what our final proposal to send to the local government commission would be. Now, what happened is that that large ward model, the option A, was effectively ditched in response to community feedback and the existing status quo, allowing for a few minor boundary adjustments. Um, so that's our four wards that I detailed earlier. That was basically, we said, look, we'll retain that along with the four existing community boards. Now what happened before we got to this is that um, there was some really, really hard fought lobbying and debate um, and Councillor Sophie Hanford and I managed to get an amendment to that proposal for the inclusion of a new community board specifically for the villages of Raumati and Raumati South, so a Raumati community board. So we were successful in getting that included in there because that was one of the things that came through during the uh, submission process is that people in Raumati felt that they were sort of being subsumed by this big uh, paraparaumu urban beast uh, that was um, almost crowding them out, even though they actually did quite well in terms of representation on the uh, paraparaumu Raumati community board. But there's a real perception that Raumati's unique village identity was being lost against the growing urban centre of paraparaumu, which is fair enough. Our Waikanae Ward Councillor, Councillor Jocelyn Pravanov, she fought extremely hard to get an additional councillor for Waikanae, um, but knowing the votes weren't there for that, I sort of, and I agreed with Councillor Pravanov, but I focused on the battle which I thought I could win, which was the Raumata Community Board one. 
So anyway, after an extremely long and at times very confusing meeting, um, and it, if you want to watch uh, a council meeting that could have been run better, I think that's a good example. If you want, if you have a lot of time on your hands, because there's a lot of the process can get very confusing when you get into these and you're doing amendments and that sort of thing. But anyway, we got to the point where we had our status quo of the four wards and five district-wide councillors, um, as well as having five community boards. So we sent that off to the Local Government Commission. Now before we fast forward to um, April, it's worth noting that the Local Government Commission actually holds its own hearings and people can object to that proposal we sent to them. So at those hearings, we had our Deputy Mayor, Janet Holborough, and uh, Councillor James Coots, who's the Councillor for Otaki Ward. Uh, they spoke to, on Council's behalf about our proposal, and the Local Government Commission also heard from several people who'd objected to our proposal. Now, objections to a proposal automatically trigger the Local Government Commission to review a representation proposal, though in our case, that review was going to happen anyway because... Uh, our status quo was non-compliant in terms of their uh, guidance so we're always going to have a proposal reviewed but the objections I guess I, I would argue added some fuel onto that fire so anyway we arrive in April 2022 and the local government commission has been quietly posting their determinations to their website uh, and usually without any fanfare whatsoever so suddenly one day I miss a call from my colleague, Councillor Bernie Randall. We have terrible cell phone reception, Bernie. I'm very sorry that I keep missing your calls. I usually go straight to voicemail. Um, but anyway, he left me a voicemail to let me know that Carpety's determination was up on the Commission's website. So naturally I was keen to see what had happened. And I was really... I was extremely happy to discover that the Local Government Commission had essentially, as I mentioned before, chucked out our proposal and instead mandated that we have more ward councillors and they reduced the number of district-wide councillors to three, for so five down to three. Now in a way, this wasn't too dissimilar to what the net effect of my preferred option, which was option C with the small wards, would have been. Under option C, Waikanae would have been covered, the current Waikanae ward would have been covered by two councillors across two wards, one for Waikanae Beach and one for Waikanae Town, while for Parapara Umu, you would have had a Parapara Umu Beach ward with two councillors and a Parapara Umu Town ward with one councillor. They're not the actual names of them, we never developed it to that point, but that's just the, the general uh, geography of it anyway. So while the local government commission roughly kept our four existing wards. By adding those additional councillors to both the Waikanae and Paraparaumu wards to improve their representation, um, the net effect is basically the same as the same distribution of councillors to population that would have been the case under my preferred small ward model. So you can see why I, why I was happy with the result. And importantly, given the effort we put into winning the vote to make it happen, the Commission also conform, uh, confirmed our new Romati Community Board. So needless to say, I'm still feeling very vindicated by that process and that determination. Now of course, variations of this process are playing out around the country as different councils find out the result of their representation reviews, if they had one. 
Now I'm obviously not across all of these uh, as there is an extreme amount of information that feeds into each of these uh, but I thought Carpety's experience would be useful as like I said it does demonstrate that there is a check on a council's ability to do things that not only might not align with our community's uh, wishes um, and I think that was very much the case with the proposal that we put forward but it also ensures that uh, what councils are doing are actually um, they're fair and equitable for the, those communities as well so that communities that are perennially underrepresented don't actually continue to suffer in that way. Now Carpety's experience of our representation review is small fry compared to what's been playing out with Rotorua Lakes Council and that all um, flows on from their, their decisions around Māori wards and the subsequent changes that requires to the rest of the representation arrangements and this is what I talked about earlier. So without diving into their representation review process, um, the too long didn't read version of this is uh, that what happened is Rotorua, they decided to not just have a Māori ward when they came to redoing their representation arrangements but to actually change the overall balance of the council. So their proposal is to include a Māori ward that would have elected three councillors and then a single general ward that also would have elected three councillors and a district-wide ward that would have had four councillors who would have been elected by both Māori ward and general ward voters. Where the Rotorua proposal has attracted attention and the need for a law change which is where this debate has uh, by and large played out on the national stage is that the Māori ward would have had a role of 21,700 people give or take and the general ward a role of 55,600 while both wards despite that size difference still they would both elect three councillors. So as has been pointed out by critics of the bill it would have given those in the Māori ward nearly three times the voting power of those in the general ward. Now in a nutshell the council's argument, and I say council in terms of the will of the table not necessarily individual councillors, um, is that they wanted this arrangement where Māori role voters would have had uh, much more power for each of their votes I guess than the general ward voters and that was in order to recognise the importance of their partnership and relationship with Māori in their district. Now other critics have actually uh, argued that they've made the argument that Māori representation on councils is best achieved through having either iwi or hapu having voting representatives on council rather than uh, via a Māori ward model. Now this is in part because having iwi or hapu representatives recognises the primacy of mana whenua and that's the iwi or hapu whakapapa to that um, ge geographical area and they have in turn a responsibility to look after Māori from other iwi or hapu who come from outside the area but are currently residing there. But of course there's a limitation in that approach of having uh, iwi or hapu representatives on council is that under current legislation those mana whenua representatives can't have voting rights at the main council table um, but they can have them at uh, committees or subcommittees of the council. Now as I mentioned before for Rotorua to 
bring these representation arrangements into reality, they needed a law change. And that's where this has played out in terms of debate in the House and then the select committee process. And I think the big highlight, or the big, um, I'm not sure highlight's quite the right word, but the big news story to come out of that was that the Attorney General, David Parker, has to write a a report on the bill. And that gets submitted into the process. And boiled down, the Attorney General's report basically said that the bill and the representation arrangements that it would create would uh, create discrimination and that is in that general ward voters were being discriminated against by having their votes being le- worth less than Māori ward voters. And it essentially said that that discrimination could not be justified. So it's not saying that you can't have some arrangement that slightly changes the balance. Um, and we see that in terms of the way we have under and over representation in wards as it is. Uh, but it was saying that it was at such an extreme that it couldn't be justified and it in turn created discrimination. So that's basically how it went. Now, in any event, the debate over this uh, could well be mute now because the other week, Rotorua Lakes Council decided and ironically, given what I was talking about earlier, they did so during a public excluded section of a council meeting uh, to request a pause to the bill. Now, it's substantially to address concerns that have been raised about the bill, um, but there's a problem in that if they want this, these representation arrangements to be in place for this year's local body elections, the bill actually has to be passed, I think, by the 30th of June. Now, a local bill like this isn't likely to be rushed through the House, especially not when it's now been um, requested for a pause by the Council. So it does look like this might be dead in the water for at least this round of Council elections. Um, and there's definitely a view that there's there's a need to go back to the drawing board on this. And in that event, there'll be a slightly different arrangement in terms of Rotorua's representation arrangements for the selection that will come into being. Now on that note about this being Rotorua deciding that in a public excluded part of um, their meetings, uh, their, their council meeting on this, that in itself has actually stirred up some controversy because it doesn't actually appear like appear that there were any genuine grounds under the Local Government Official Information and Meetings Act for them to actually exclude the public from, that, from discussion about the bill. Um, it seems to basically be that the council wanted to have a free and frank discussion about it, not in the public's eyes, and possibly to save them from embarrassment, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that's that's a small issue there that's potentially going to be not necessarily litigated, but I would wager if any journalist um, puts in a request under Lagoima, which is the, the terrible sounding acronym we use for that act, um, if they put in a request for the details of that public excluded section and then they have to take it to the ombudsman i have a strong suspicion that the uh, ombudsman will rule in the journalist's favor but anyway from a broader perspective i think this does raise the question of how to address this issue going forward now one possibility would be to amend the local government act to allow councils to have voting iwi and hapu representatives at that top council table as opposed to having the status quo where they can vote at committee and subcommittee level but only sort of observe and question and 
um, possibly participate in debate at the discretion of the chair, um, but they can't vote at those full council meetings. So that approach would work for councils where they've actually resolved to take the approach of working directly with mana whenua via the iwi and hapu level and the um, entities that existed at that level to represent them. But of course that doesn't work necessarily for councils who want to go down the Māori ward path and if they want um, Māori to have any sort of influence that's greater than what they'd have, what the uh, general population would have through a general ward and that's the issues we've been talking about in the Rotorua Bill. Um, and that all boils down to the conflict that exists there between that basic principle of one person, one vote. And I would say on that that it's probably hard to see a government wanting to, I guess, push that if they don't have to because the politics of it now, not necessarily a place I think many parties, other than say uh, Te Party Māori, might want to get into. And I'm, I'm just being cynical about the situation, not saying whether I agree with it or not. It's just I think that's the political reality of it. But of course, that all being said, talking about that basic principle of one person, one vote, um, that's not actually a strictly true principle either in local government, because you see. You can be resident in one council area, and if you own property in another council area, you can potentially cast a vote in that election too. And this is this, I think I've talked about this before, this is this mechanism called ratepayer rolls. And what they do is that they essentially give uh, property owners the ability to cast votes across multiple council elections. Um, and this has been created as an attempt to address the the age-old gripe of no taxation without representation. But what it does do is it gives property owners far more voting influence than other voters. Um, and in my mind it does fall foul of the same issue that the Rotorua Bill does. Uh, that's not to say that potentially someone who does live across two districts Maybe they do have a good case for being able to vote in both of them. Maybe they don't necessarily have a primary residence. I don't know, there'd be a small number of people. But it is, you know, it's one of those gnarly issues where you've got these people who are paying, they are paying rates and they want to be represented um, because it's their money at stake. But at the same time, they might not necessarily live there. And I think we see that play out a bit with uh, people who either have rentals in other council areas or they have holiday homes or those sorts of things or even in some cases commercial property I'd guess as well. Anyway that's that's a whole another debate for another day. But finally before we finish today I think it would be remiss of me not to do a, a quick update of some of the uh, other local government news that's happened since our last episode because as I said earlier there has been quite a bit happening. So first we'll have a look at the elections. Um, now we'll start in Auckland and to be honest there's actually not too much new to report. Other than the fact that there was uh, recent news about a poll, um, allegedly from Feso Collins, who's uh, the Labour Party endorsed uh, mayoral candidate up there, which actually purportedly shows that things are a lot closer than what they initially appeared. And the surprise from that poll, if it's to be believed, is that former Far North Mayor Wayne Brown um, is looking like the second place candidate in it. Now I'll put up my hand and fess that I have been remiss that I haven't really covered Wayne Brown's candidacy. 
And that's in part because the media focus has been on the likes of Viv Beck and um, Leo Malloy in the sort of a three-horse race with Efeso Collins. Um, but the leaked poll seems to suggest that the mayoral race is really opening up. You've got Efeso Collins on 24%, Wayne Brown on 21%, and uh, Viv Beck on 18%. Now, crucially in that, 36% of voters are undecided. So there really is everything to play for in Auckland by the looks of things. Now seeing as we've talked about Rotorua a fair bit today, I think it's worth mentioning that sitting councillor um, Tanya Tapsell, and she was formerly the National Party's candidate for East Coast in the 2020 general election, she's announced that she's going to be seeking the mayoralty there. Uh, Tapsell is extremely well regarded uh, both in terms of national politics and local politics. So I think her entry into that mayoral race may very well see her become the front runner for Rotorua. Now in Wellington, we've talked we've talked about how nothing was happening in Wellington um, uh, other than uh, former Green Party Chief of Staff Tori Fano um, having announced her candidacy there. But she's now been joined by Barbara McKenzie, who founded a campaign opposing the way that Wellington City Council was implementing uh, significant natural areas. Now that's a uh, requirement under the Resource Management Act and a national policy statement there. And that so she was opposing how that was being implemented into the council's district plan. And then the other candidate who's announced is Ray Chung, who is a former council candidate, I believe, maybe a mayoral candidate as well, I'm not sure. Um, but he was one of the founders of the Onslow Residents Community Association. Now, as a way of disclosure, I will mention that while I don't know Ray personally, his brother has been a family friend going back uh, several several decades, so I think it's just worth mentioning that there. Now, incumbent Mayor of Wellington, Andy Foster, is yet to announce his intentions, though rumours have been swirling about that he has been trying to line up a team of candidates to stand in the various wards um, to try and create a council next term that might be a bit more sympathetic to him. Um, meanwhile, the likely Labour Party candidate, who's the MP for Rongatai and former Wellington Deputy Mayor Paul Eagle, he still hasn't announced anything. But rumours are intensifying that he's going to be announcing something in June and he's already got a team behind the scenes sort of laying the groundwork for that. And that, if, if, I should also mention that if Paul Eagle was elected as Mayor of Wellington and that's by no means a certain thing. Uh, I think we just have to look at the 2019 election in Wellington where everyone thought Justin Lester was odds on to be re-elected and then he wasn't. Um, so it doesn't matter if you look like you're the hot favourite in Wellington unexpected things will happen um, but let's say he was elected as mayor then that would trigger a, a by-election for Rongatai which is a very safe Labour seat sort of on par with what uh, Tauranga is in terms of a safe seat for the National Party. Anyway let's keep moving uh, and the final council race I want to touch on here council race mayoral race I want to touch on here is that in Nelson we have councillor Rowan O'Neill Stevens I hope I've pronounced that correctly uh, who at 22 is the youngest councillor on Nelson Council by some 20 years and they've announced that they're going to be seeking the mayoralty there and uh, from what I can tell they've got very strong Green Party links as well so I wouldn't be surprised if we see an endorsement there if there hasn't been one already. Now the other big piece of local government news and this was at the end of April was that local government minister Nanaya Mahuta 
and Finance Minister Grant Robertson announced the next steps of the big Three Waters reform, which the government is continuing to push ahead on. The biggest change which they announced, um, and this announcement was made in response to the various recommendations that were made to them by the main working group that I've talked about in previous episodes about this. Um, Now, the main recommendation was that they were giving councils an actual shareholding in these new entities. So the way this would work is that councils will get one share per 50,000 people, rounded up to ensure small councils get at least one share. Um, But in reality, this doesn't actually change too much, um, other than perhaps the voting elements in terms of when it comes to big decisions, if they had to happen, I guess, in some way uh, in the... uh, in the new entities. But what it does do is it does sort of try and negate some of the argument that councillors were losing ownership of their assets. Uh, So what it's now saying is you do still own your assets, you've got a shareholding in these new entities, so you're still the owner of them, even if it's technically being owned and uh, controlled and managed by this new big entity. Anyway, that's that's the gist of what they're trying to do there. Now, to try and address some of the concerns around smaller communities losing their ability to influence decisions, as you can imagine, um, where you've got an entity that's stretching over a quarter of the country, um, a small little township in that uh, may feel like they're going to lose out to any of the bigger metropolitan uh, centres. What's going to have what these new um, entities will have at the regional representative group? So that sits above the entity board, and that's made up of representatives of the councils that are within the boundaries, and also uh, EWI representatives too. But what these representative groups will need to establish are local subcommittees that will feed into them. Um, And that's designed to try and get more of that local voice brought up into um, their oversight of the new entities. So, So the argument there, of course, is that it's making sure that locals feel like they can still influence these, but given that the regional representative group uh, will be setting a statement of expectations and not making decisions about how the entities necessarily operate, that's for the actual, well not even the management boards of them, that's for the actual management of the entities, um, because there's obviously another layer of the entity board that sits between the regional representative group and say the CEO of the new water entity. But that's the idea there anyway. Now the final thing is that Now this isn't the change per se, but in that announcement the government did go to some lengths to try and set the record straight around co-governance. Now co-governance is what I just talked about, which is having EB representatives on the regional representative group and having them having an equal number or equal representation to the councils that are there. Now... Like I said, the government didn't actually announce any change there. What they did is they they really pointed out that actually EWI representation is at that upper regional representative group level. Whereas many opponents of the reform have inaccurately painted this picture of EWI representatives being um, directly on the entity boards themselves. And that's simply not the case. They're up at the regional representative group level. Uh, they'll, they'll have... The entity will have to respond to a separate um, set of expectations from iwi uh, but that co-governance level is at the exact same level as where councils will be and actually it's not that different from the re- arrangements that exist say for the waikato river for uh, 
I think possibly Tongariro National Park, I'd have to check that. Um, many councils have some very strong partnerships with iwi as well, which almost uh, almost uh, co-governance arrangements, so not quite. Um, so it's not really that major of a change, but opponents have been, I think, um, they have been painting a picture that's not only inaccurate, it is, in some cases, it has been downright racist. Um, and that, so the government has really sort of called that out and pushed back against that. Now, of course, inaccuracy isn't and it's just an issue for opponents of, this, of the Three Waters Reform. And as I've said publicly, I'm actually generally supportive of what the government is trying to do here. But following that announcement, one bugbear of mine has been how the government and the Labour Party have been trying to sell the reforms in terms of saving households from high water bills. The, uh, the gist of their argument is that without the reforms, households would face bills of up to $9,000 a year by 2051. And in one case, the Labour Party actually claimed that the reforms would save households $9,000 a year. And they've sort of had similar wording to that elsewhere as well. But the problem is that that claim of water bills reaching up to $9,000 per year by 2051 is based off what was the worst case scenario across the whole country, which was modelled out by the Water Industry Commission for Scotland, which you'll often hear referred to as WICS, um, W-I-C-S. Uh, and that was that worst case is under the state, this um, status quo of councils retaining direct control of three waters. Now on the flip side, WICS modelled the best case scenario of uh, household water bills by 2051, and this was with the reforms, of it being $800 a year. Now the problem here, as anyone familiar with reading or writing business cases will know, is that these outcomes are at the extreme ends of possibilities, which actually means that they're the least likely outcomes of a world with or without the reforms. So when the Labour Party was out there claiming a saving of $9,000 a year per household, uh, there's no saving of that amount. The best they could have claimed, and it still would have been rather dubiously, they could have claimed a saving of 8200 a year, and that would have been using the worst case and best case scenarios. Um, so that's an, that's an $800 difference in terms of the saving they were claiming. Um, now that might not sound like much by 2051, but across all the connections that have been modelled um, by WICS, that would have equated to a financial hole of around about $1.2 billion a year. Now importantly, in the WICS modelling, what they actually show, and this is what they work the business case off in terms of uh, the information that's available on the Department of Internal Affairs website, is they show that the likely saving is going to average around $2,260 per year by 2051. So that's less than a third of the uh, sort of worst best case scenario figure that the government has been using. And that by 2051 actually works out as a difference of $10 billion across all connections. So that's actually quite a significant difference. Um, a $10 billion saving is, you know, claiming there's going to be $10 billion more of savings than is probably realistic to claim. That's quite big. Um, and my big concern here is that the government is being unrealistic and over-promising the financial benefits from the reforms. 
Now economies of scale when it comes to amalgamations like this are always going to be a point of contention. And as I've just mentioned, there's this real frustrating tendency by those advocating for amalgamations to overstate the likely savings from them. And that's why I suspect we're seeing here with the government explicitly using occasionally misstating the worst case scenario for continued local government uh, direct control and comparing it to the best case for a reform scenario. Now there's an interesting paper, I think it's from 2002 uh, by Joel, Joel Bynes, Burns, Joel Burns and Brian Dollery um, from the University of New England in New South Wales. And what they did is they surveyed whether economies of scale exist in local government amalgamations. And it's worth a Google, I think the, the titles Do Economies of Scale Exist in Australian Local Government? A review of the empirical evidence. Um, but anyway, so what they did is they went and surveyed a range of studies that have reviewed the financial impacts of amalgamations in the public space. So it was both local government and central government. And it was across the United States and Canada and Belgium and Australia and the United Kingdom. So, and when I say, I should say, when I say public space, I'm not just meaning infrastructure entities, I'm not just meaning councils. I think there might have been an example of school boards or something similar being amalgamated in one of the examples here, the studies they looked at. But what their conclusion was that there was just too much uncertainty around whether economies or diseconomies of scale were created through amalgamations. Of course, locally, you could actually look at the the flip side of this and you look at the Royal Commission on Auckland Governance. Um, this is going back a, a few years now, but uh, back in 2009, the Royal Commission estimated cost savings of between $76 million to $113 million a year that would result from amalgamating the eight, eight or nine, nine councils. I'm having a moment, I can't remember. I think it's nine councils, it might be eight, I apologise. But anyway, all the councils in Auckland being amalgamated together. Um, but what we've had more recently is that Auckland Council came out to mark the 10-year anniversary of amalgamation and they put the figure of realised cost savings at around $316 million. Um, So there are cases where economies of scale do potentially exist and they do potentially exceed the estimates beforehand. I mean, it's just so uncertain and this is... This is why I feel the government needs to be so careful about using the things like the worst case scenario for continued local government control and the best case scenario from the Wix modelling um, in terms of trying to sell the financial benefits. Because there is just too much uncertainty, not just in terms of whether it will deliver economies of scale or diseconomies of scale, but you're looking 30 years into the future as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the record as being... You know, as I've said, I'm generally supportive of this, but I'm also a strong advocate for having Wellington regional amalgamation. But I don't think the primary driver of that amalgamation should be cost savings. I think if there's cost savings, it's good. But actually, cost savings should be reinvested into council operations to lift the overall standard across the whole region. Um, but that's a that's a debate for another episode, another day. And on that cheery note, uh, I think that's enough for this week's episode. I'm Gwen Compton, this is Local Aotearoa, and until next time, Ra. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the personal views of Gwen Compton and are not necessarily those of the Kapiti Coast District Council. 
authorised by Gwyn Compton, 60 Manly Street, Paraparaumu.